You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. So today we've got a really exciting uh, panel and I'll be introducing Heidi Lee who will moderate uh, the session. In the plenary session, if you were there, uh, we heard about ground up movements and also economic change. And so when I think about all of the fabulous industry groups and associations that are here, they are both people powered, but they also represent uh, the economic shifts. And there's a clear uh, point of advocacy that all of uh, all of these groups are bringing today, so it's really exciting that we can um, hear more about how they're going about their uh, declarations um, and, and what that means um, for all of the members. So I'll introduce Heidi Lee, um, for those of you that don't know Heidi. Uh, she's business and industry lead at Beyond Zero Emissions, and she's working with the manufacturing sector to electrify Australian factories and power them with renewables. And yesterday we heard about a lot of terrific examples uh, where she's working with communities, uh, those manufacturing communities, SMEs across Australia. Um, some really terrific work and evidence-based research um, to inform that engagement. She's previously worked as an architect. Um, she created a lot of change in that, that space. Um, and she's excited about the potential to drastically reduce embodied emissions in Australian-made building materials like cement, steel, bricks and plastic. So having specified and worked with these materials over the years, she's now getting to the, the source. She's an invited guest lecturer and reviewer at local universities on topics of sustainability, collaborative design and stakeholder engagement. She has a long history with BZD and the Zero Carbon Australia collaboration, so those fundamental and uh, exemplary plans that have really um, shown us a way forward to decarbonise here in Australia. So I'll hand over to Heidi and have fun. Thank you so much, Michelle. And welcome everyone and um, welcome to a fantastic panel here today. Great introduction, but really the skill that I'm going to use today is holding a microphone and um, introducing a group of really talented and motivated professionals who are looking to make change in the way that they work and the way that their industry contributes to the uh, climate emergency and climate emergency solutions. So what we have decided to do as a panel, we're going to give um, short introductions. So you'll hear from each of our panelists for about three to five minutes. Then you'll get a chance to start asking questions. We know that there's a lot of questions. Some of it's about the detail of why and how they're doing what they're doing and other parts will maybe be about what this might mean for you in your um, role in the community or in your work. So I've got a run sheet here, which I'm just going to go through to make sure that I don't forget anyone. <laughs> Caroline Pidcock from Architects Declare is the first uh, person to introduce herself to us. Take it away. Okay, sorry. Sorry. Just um, so, to start, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I'd particularly like to acknowledge their deep sense of connection to country and seek their guidance as we look to repair our lands and our relationships with them. Wills Howman said, um, throughout history, the really fundamental changes in societies that come that have come not from dictates of government and the results of battles, but through vast numbers of people changing their minds, sometimes by only a little bit. By deliberately changing the internal images of reality, people can change the world. The Architects Declare movement, which was declared last July and is now over 850 signatories, some of those as representing more than 300 people and some of them representing only one, 
is spontaneous, decentralised and non-hierarchical and is by its very nature disruptive. Instead of relying on government, governing bodies or associations to take the lead, it urges each architect to take responsibility for action in their own lives and practices. Through inverting the traditional method of advocacy and policy deployment, the movement fosters a bottom-up approach to community-led change-making. It was started by a small group of people which is now expanding to help make it happen. So why architects? 39% of global CO2 emissions come from buildings. That's a pretty big count. 28% from operational energy and 11% from the embodied energy in, that goes to making them. Embodied energy is going to become increasingly important as we make the buildings more energy efficient and we decarbonise the energy supply. More importantly, I think, architects are well-placed to creatively work within complex parameters <clears throat> to deliver delightful and naturally comfortable places to live, work and learn in. In the UK, where this whole movement started, they are actually supported by a government that believes in climate change and is really supporting it in structural ways. They have a thing called the 2030 Climate Challenge, which aims to help architects meet net zero or better whole life carbon for new and re retrofitted buildings by 2030. It sets a series of targets for practices to adopt, reduce operational energy, embodied energy and potable water, and we're going to be building on that. Another group, Architects Climate Action Network, which is a group of younger architects there to sort of prompt their employers, they've simplified the message to just three things, decarbonise now, ecological regeneration and cultural transformation, all really great aims. Um, here in Australia, we see that while 2019 was the year of declaration, 2020 is the year of action. Jeremy McLeod from Breathe Architecture here in Melbourne is leading the way by calling on all those who declared to decarbonise now. He asked us all to switch to 100% green energy by 30th of January 2020, to audit our carbon footprints by June 30, 2020, and then reduce and offset those emissions by the end of the year. Actions that we can do without asking permission from anybody or needing anyone to do it, we can do it ourselves. They can be done at a personal level, a practice level and then industry level. While it's been suggested that it might be a waste of time for us individually to fret over our carbon footprint, when what we most need to do is focus on changing governments and economic systems, I agree with others who say we can't change the world without changing ourselves. Changes are best done in the company of others who support and inspire us. And as a fabulous um, nun called Mary McKillop said, we can't do everything. We can't do nothing, but we can do something. Also, as chair of One Million Women, um, I'm multitasking today, um, a group that aims to empower millions of women to live a zero carbon life through their daily choices, I am really aware of how powerful it is to take control of your own choices in life and make the changes you can. It empowers you to make more and bigger changes and ask for more from others. There are many meetings happening around the country right now to consider further actions, such as creating sustainability action plan templates for practice to, to adapt, um, assistance in best practice carbon auditing and offsetting processes, and design directions for reducing operational embodied energy. There's a, a, a session on on the 22nd of February called Ask an Architect that I encourage you to go to as part of the, Living Fest the Sustainable Living Festival. 
I'm hoping that many architects will use this whole platform and their creative and persuasive talents to help their clients go way beyond code to actually do create and code just remember building code below that is illegal it's not a great thing it's just kind of stopping the worst case so to go beyond code and look at what really code should be at least in 10 years and help those clients to sort of be persuaded that they their buildings will be better will be more resilient and much more valuable assets in the future for a whole bunch of reasons by doing this they can sort of um, import sort of help showcase what should be done and help make the codes easier to deliver when they need to come. Um, so I think importantly we also need to better understand how to engage in regenerative design so we can truly understand the places, people and briefs we are designing within and then help them realise the potential of these systems. From Regenesis, a group in America who specialise in regenerative design, the present moment offers the potential, born of crisis, to transform the way humans inhabit the earth. To do so, we must learn to respond creatively to an increasingly unpredictable world. We must enable the places where we live and work to thrive, not just sustain a pre precarious balance. We must embrace their, their in, inherently beautiful complexity of life as a source of innovation and evolution. We must discover new ways to participate in a dynamic universe. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline. That's a lot to think about there with the way that the built environment is so pervasive and part of um, our every experience. And I imagine most of us today have had thousands of points of contact with something that a, an architect or a built environment professional has created. I'd like to hear from Dr. Richard Yin next, um, from Doctors for the Environment Australia, for your five-minute intro and give us some context and, and set the scene so we can ask you some really interesting questions later. So I represent Doctors for Environment Australia and we're a medical advocacy group um, and it's a, a group of doctors that have been around since 2002. Uh, and the premise of our existence is really that human health is contingent on a healthy environment. So that's, and our motto is healthy planet, healthy people. So our first climate change and health policy was in 2002. So we've been advocating this space for a really long time, uh, trying to make the case that this is a health issue. And in last year, around April last year, we declared a climate emergency. The AMA subsequently declared in September. And in late October, uh, we made, we started a campaign, a climate and health emergency campaign, started around October. And from that, since then, we've had about six or seven colleges now declare a climate and health emergency. So it was attached to a petition, and since then, we've had some two and a half thousand doctors sign up to the petition. And the colleges represent in total some 70 to 80,000 doctors. Uh, that have then declared through their colleges representing about two-thirds of all doctors in Australia. Now, our place in declaring was really to raise the profile of this issue as a public health crisis, which it is. So for us, it's a very real threat, and it's been a very real threat and articulated as such 
um, both internationally and nationally since about 2008, uh, when the WHO made statements and also um, the journal The Lancet um, outlined a really important pa paper outlining the case for why it was a health threat. Uh, but it's taken some time to get some traction within our community that's very inwardly focused on saving lives, and that's a very valid thing. Um, but I think this summer has really changed things. I think this summer has highlighted all the issues that we spoke about in theory about why it was a health issue come to fruition uh, in these fires. And so if you look at the direct impacts, if you look at the direct impacts of the fires of deaths, uh, the impacts in terms of smoke, which we were completely unprepared for, I'd have to say. I, I think we didn't quite understand the magnitude that those impacts would have. Um, if you then look at also the impacts related to heat waves, and we know that heat waves basically kill. So when things get hot, uh, people die, the frail, uh, the elderly, those with pre-existing diseases. And then there are the profound psychological impacts of climate change. And I don't think they should be underestimated. These fires with the loss of life, um, loss of loved ones, loss of communities, loss of jobs, um, will have significant impacts. And we look at something like the Black Saturday um, fires of 2009 and we just extrapolate out the intangible costs from those fires alone was somewhere in the vicinity, they're, they're basically psychological and social impacts, or somewhere around four billion. Um, the fires that burnt this time about 25 times the size and lasted much longer, a simple back of the hand calculation will put this at $100 billion in terms of psychological and social impacts from um, depression, anxiety, alcoholism, unemployment, and all those other factors. So this is a very real issue for us in terms of preparing the health sector for more and more climate change impacts and also being clear about the need to uh, prevent that which is going to be unmanageable. We have to avoid the unmanageable. Um, so the advocacy is, first of all, uh, in terms of pushing the sector to understand that we're in the midst of an emergency that has to be dealt with, um, to prepare the sector for the impacts that are going to happen and also to push for mitigation targets in line with the science. So we're a science-based organisation and profession. We need to be science-based in what we do. We, we act on the basis of science when it becomes um, a viral threat. We should act on the basis of science on this health threat. Now, there are others of us that are also in this space within the health sector. Um, there's a Climate and Health Alliance who've also declared a climate emergency. Uh, they include nurses and allied health professionals. And collectively, we need to be doing something. In terms of mitigation, the health sector contributes some 7% of Australia's total emissions. So let's be clear, we, we emit a lot, and that's largely in terms of procurement. Hospitals are highly energy intensive. And it's clear we need to do our part, and part of the line is going to be around sustainable health systems. But it would be greenwashing to only focus on the health sector, because if our emissions in total do not come down, aligned to science, we would be doing a disservice 
to the public if we're not calling for action on this public health crisis. So for, to my mind, um, the, the call for emissions reductions based on science uh, is as much a public health act as any other thing that we do, you know, whether it's addressing tobacco, whether it's addressing asbestos, whether it's as, as addressing a viral threat. So we need to be reducing our emissions. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. There's a, a lot to think about there and the impact of the, the health sector itself at, at 7% just to run it. And then, uh, heaven forbid, we do drastic energy efficiency measures or something in there and make it any less effective um, addressing the, the crisis that um, is unfolding that we need our, our system to be ready to protect. Perhaps questions on that later. Jane from Engineers Declare. Um, what can you share with us about what you've been doing in your profession and more broadly the sector? Uh, good morning or possibly good afternoon everyone at this point um, and we're recognising that we also stand between you and your lunch so um, we appreciate your attention. Um, Engineers uh, Declare uh, was born out of a small group of engineers who um, we were discussing this morning think quite differently about the engineering sector and the role that the sector plays. If you historically look at where the engineering sector was born out of, um, we're a profession that grew out of the Industrial Revolution and primarily in response to public health crises, ironically. So water, sanitation, housing, energy, food security um, are all issues that the engineering profession was um, developed around. Unfortunately for the profession, um, many of us have moved a long way away from that and from the uh, tangible impacts of that on our community. So um, my personal career as an engineer um, was in the aerospace sector and it was so far removed from the people and the impact that we could have on planet and community that I chose to leave and do the type of work I do now, which is more closely aligned to this systems work. Uh, last September, about mid-August, um, Engineer, Engineers Declare was born and by the World Engineering Convention, which happened to have been held in Melbourne last year, we had 120 organisations signed up and over 1,000 individuals. Uh, most of those organisations are small, but there's some very big ones and some very big multinationals in there as well. Um, as of last week, we have 150 organisations and over 1,500 individuals signed um, to the declaration. Um, and similar to the discussion Carolyn um, shared with you, we this year are focused on transitioning that to action. So it's all very well to declare an emergency. We had a little bit about that this morning. Um, but what does it actually mean to, to change practice? The shift in focus this year uh, is very much about a, a, a bottom-up and a top-down approach. So um, there is a bottoms-up need to change the way engineers engage and make decisions and the, and the practices through which they do that. Um, so we're recognising that and we've got a whole a series of work around that. The other um, opportunity that we have as a sector is that there are some very large-scale problems and I would, um, if you're not aware of uh, Downer's announcement recently and pulling out of the solar sector in Australia, um, there are some very large systemic problems for which, frankly, the problem is poorly defined. And as an industry, ironically, when we define a problem really well, engineers are actually really good at going and solving it. 
Um, so part of the role we see for the movement is in supporting organisations to define the problem and to provide support around unsticking work that is already happening to try and solve those. So how do we scale that up and mobilise it in a different way with a different set of skills to what the industry traditionally holds? Um, so I think that's probably a good point to leave off and we welcome any questions. Thank you so much, Jane. David, uh, following on with another built environment professional, we were the CEO of the Planning Institute of Australia and going to tell us about the very recent um, declaration from PIA. Sure. I might stand if you can put up with the back of me. The Planning Institute of Australia, we connect with about over 10,000 planners every year. How many planners are out there? We don't really know. It's not a regulated profession like engineers and others. We think about 20,000. What do they do? I suspect not many in the room know. Town planners are that quiet force, that quiet force that help actually shape the cities and towns that we live in. It began, much like engineers, as a response to the health. It was a health-driven response to industrialisation. It started out, where are we going to put the factories? Where are we going to put the houses so the people don't get sick? Where are we going to put the water supplies? And out of that grew what we now call town planning, or because you've got to be in the lingo, urban and regional planning. And we are, if you like, at the beginning of the supply chain, if you want to look at that in an economic sense. Planners are at the very front point of how we shape our cities, regions, towns, and we get there by asking questions, by collaborating with all the other professions, with developers, with the community. We are the ones who sit there in the middle and hear all these views, all these needs, and we help craft the best solution that is possible. There's a deep sense of altruism in planners. There's not big egos, because you all would have heard of them. But it is a profession that, at its very core, are the advocates for the public interest. Because you could imagine what our cities would look like if there wasn't an advocate for the public interest. We work very closely with architects and landscape architects who are not here today, and the three design professions are what you call the sweet spot where they overlap is urban design, and then we invite the engineers in. Once we've got all the good ideas, we say, you reckon you can build this for us? And don't let it fall down. <laughs> but that altruism and that being the advocate for the public interest you might say, well, why, David, did it take you so long to declare a climate emergency? The reason is, as CEO of a major professional association, and I'll segue for a moment, I think the organic individual declare movements of the professions is brilliant. And hopefully we'll get one in the planning profession as well. But 
I wanted to look at it at the more national level for a national profession and what we can do at that level because it needs action at all levels. We've had a, uh, a policy around climate change now for almost 10 years in the Institute that has guided much of the work we do in advising governments at all levels on policy, planning policy, all sorts of policies. And gradually we've got more and more strident in those views. And it's a very broad church of planners, as you could imagine. We've got people in public sector, all levels of government. We've got people in the private sector, in consulting, in development firms. We've got academics, a very broad church that represent the, the breadth of the community. So we have become more strident and more clear in our views now over the last few years. And when I first, oh, this is a bit of honesty coming up, which I'm a slow thinker. But when I saw the first hashtag climate emergence, I thought, just another hashtag. If I jump on this, it'll last a month, two months. But what does it mean? But it did give me the view and the guidance and the energy to say what will the planning institute actually do, whether we join the hashtag or not, what are we going to do? And how brave am I going to be as a CEO of a broad church in making very clear, pointed positions for the organisation. Can I bring a profession with me? So I've been testing that in the great social testing world of Twitter. <laughs> and what I found was enormous support and very little pushback. So that emboldened me. So what have we done? We've signed up as part of the uh, Australian Sustainable Built Environment Group. We've belonged to them for a long while, ASBEC. And as a group, we have now all committed to zero net embodied carbon, which we were just talking about, because you heard the emission levels from the built environment level. Now, that talks about reducing net emissions for the whole life cycle from conception of a building, construction, right through to demolition, 40% and operations in the meantime. 40% reduction by 2030, zero by 2050. Now, you can think about operational carbon being zero by, at some point, really, it's not all that hard, but full life cycle, that's gonna be an enormous challenge for the industry, for the, for the whole profession, for the built environment sector but the planners are stepping up and we will play our part in scope one, two and three emissions for that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that, David. It's uh, really interesting and maybe we'll have more questions about how you have engaged the, the broad church um, of, of your membership in this conversation. We, we heard from Rebecca, we heard from, I think it was Rebecca yesterday, Rebecca Huntley saying that um, we can't really confuse new, um, that idea of objectivity with neutrality. 
that, that we, there's a truth-telling to this and a truth-telling in the way that we face the science and interpret the science in a broad church. And I loved especially, I know that it was Rebecca who said that, um, what was it, I missed the thing now, but she had a really great point about how we really have to be able to agree on the direction we're going rather than agree on the science and why first. So to Susanna now, you're here today representing Intrepid Travel, um, which are a member of Tourism Declares. So I'm looking forward to your quick intro to what it is you're doing and then some questions from the audience coming next. Thank you very much and thank you for having me here today as part of this conversation, which has never been more urgent. But, yeah, but before I start, I really would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognize their ongoing connection to land, water, and culture. And I'd like to pay my respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and especially pay respect to any First Nation person in the room with us today. As we all know, the last two months were devastating for many communities across Australia bushfires, floods, but also record heats. But it's not only here that um, at home where Intrepid Travel has its headquarter, we are actually seeing the impact of climate change. So we have 42 um, operations across the globe and organized trip in more, trips in more than 120 countries. And we work very closely with the communities in those countries, so that's through our offices, but certainly through our trips by employing local leaders, etc., but also through our Intrepid um, Foundation, the non-for-profit arm of Intrepid Travel. And it's here really that we are seeing the impact of climate change. And that's whether it's local communities being impacted by flooding, if you think of Kerala in India, but also in the past summer in Europe, we had to reroute a lot of our trips because of the heat wave that Southern Europe was experiencing in July and August. And that's really why Intrepid took this bold step um, to declare a climate emergency earlier this year in January. And perhaps you're thinking, that's not really what I was expecting a travel business to do. But quite honestly, we have not only been recently interested or concerned about climate change. In fact, our journey started back in 2005. So a group of senior managers at the time read The Weathermaker by Tim Flannery, which is about the history and future of climate change. And that was actually just the start of getting the business to start thinking about climate change. The next year, in 2006, Intrepid took the whole Intrepid office um, staff to see the inconvenient truth, together with 900 of their travelers. And no one liked what they saw in the film. And we realized at Intrepid that we actually had to do more. We had to start to act and act fast. So we then surveyed about over 1,000 customers around the world and discovered that actually 91% of those customers were saying, act now, you need to act on climate change. And that was our customers, also potential customers, that wanted us to take practical steps. So in 2010, that's now 10 years ago, we actually became the world's largest carbon neutral travel comp company. 
<laughs> Sorry. <I'm laughs> Since then, we actually have offset over 300,000 tons of CO2. And we are investing in high-quality carbon offsets projects that are providing environmental, social, but also economic benefits to society. And just to give you a taste of what one of these projects looked like is the Savannah Burning Project that we are purchasing carbon offset credits from that are in Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. Um, but based on the fact we know today, we'd be relying to ourselves if we're not acting and continue to do something and that accepting that there's something wrong with the travel industry. So as I said, we actually declared a climate emergency with other organizations, individuals, and um, business in the tourism industry as part of the tourism declare. And our climate emergency is underpinned by a seven-point commitment plan. We passionately believe that it's a responsibility and obligation of business to act and that includes us in Trappet, and that we need to ensure that we limit global warming to 1.5 degree. Climate change is everyone's business, and business needs to be part of the solution. Part of our commitment plan is creating a climate-positive company in 2020. And this means that we're actually creating additional environmental benefits. So we're removing additional carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but most importantly, are starting to decarbonizing the business. And that means across our operations, but also across our trips. So I've worked at Intrepid now for over a year, and seeing the journey that the company has been on and the plans that we're having going forward have been fascinating. We have indeed a lot to do in the coming weeks, months, and years ahead of us, and I'm pretty, really excited to be part of it. Thank you. I, I have a microphone. So we have a really, like, a, quite a range of different professions um, represented here. And just a show of hands so we know who we are talking to, you know who you're uh, talking to. Now, for you guys, with this range here, we have engineers, doctors, architects, representing planners and representing travel. Who of you are a member of one of those professions currently or, or previously? So quite, quite a few, actually, for anyone sitting at the front. It's about half the people in the room are actually one of the members. What about other people who are here today who maybe are thinking that their profession has not yet done the declaration or is trying to declare? Yes, we've got a bit of interest in that as well. That's really useful for us to know. Um, does anyone feel brave about just uh, mentioning a couple of professions? Communications, PR and marketing. The university sector. Forgive me for repeating these things. Lawyers. Lawyers. Oh. <laughs> yes. The veterinarians for climate action were in the room yesterday. Congratulations. And we've got, I'll take two more at the back. Of, okay. Red. The arts sector, thank you. Uh, oh, come on, I said two. one, last one. Thank you. The astronomy network, okay. Um, okay. Sorry, sustainability professionals. The job is in organizations to bring the change 
sustainability professionals declaring. Okay. <laughs> one last one. Of course, Michelle. Supply chain and logistics. Thank you very much. So, now that we know something of our audience, we know a lot of our, our panellists and the work that they're doing, we're going to start, the questions are going to, we hope, spark a bit of a conversation that leave us with some incentive and more information for those professionals who are already a part of these groups and maybe a bit of a pathway or, or some kind of, you know, on, on the way kind of journeys that we can help make a bit more easy, a bit more streamlined, perhaps a little more collaborative. That was interesting to hear the, you know, the engineers coming in at the end of the day to make it all work. I wonder <laughs> if that's something that we could use uh, a, a different approach to, um, to collaborate together and rapid action. Hey, how about it? So from the audience, Okay, the next one, general show of hands, who wants to ask a question? Give me a scope of this. Right, we are gonna do three at a time and then we're gonna get an answer up here. So I'm gonna start on this side of the room and you're just gonna go across. There'll be time for everyone, all right. Um, I'm Jeanette Kessels from Veterinarians for Climate Action. So we've been wanting to put a sort of a template in place that can be copied by other organisations. Is that already in place with your organisations and how can we sit together and share them? Okay, so templates and plans to make this easier to do. Second question. We're just going to go through three at a time. Yep. Did, no, no, back. <laughs> so, so you, you're done now. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so I'm in the commercial property industry and... Um, I believe that the PCA, the Property Council of Australia, should be advocating um, for climate action to government because I think it's in all of the interests of all the various members of, of, of that might be here today as well. So I'm interested in if everyone agrees with that and basically how do we get them to lobby government? Great. Advocate. How do we get the PCA on board? I hope someone's helping me with taking some notes here. Third question and then we'll start answering them. Okay, I'm starting there. We're You'll be in the next batch. <laughs> this is a general question. To what extent do your bodies think that advocacy, so um, external advocacy to government, uh, is important? And to what extent do you um, advise or make or think that your professions should be, for example, choosy when it comes to accepting clients? For example, would the architects accept a brief from Rio Tinto? Or is probably more common if the budget won't go far enough to do the sorts of changes that you want, will you still work with them uh, on that basis? I'm not personalising it, but it's just an interesting issue for all. Okay, I think, I think, thank you. I'll try to frame that as a how far will your advocacy go and will you actually re, um, lose work over this? If that's okay. Okay, so with those three questions, who's going to choose the first one? This is around plans and templates. I'll um, plans and templates, we borrowed everything. We no, the UK Architects Declare gave us everything, but that was perfectly suited, and I don't know that that exact thing would work for you for the declaration. Um, and we're about now to start developing templates for what do practices do, sort of some rough templates for small, medium and large size practices. So not in place, but I, yeah, so I'm not quite sure how to help, but we could certainly talk about what you need to do to declare and then you just need to fashion your own declaration points and go from there. Good. And 
Yeah, and in addition, so Interpret Travel is uh, B Corp, and B Corp actually globally ha has published last year a climate emergency handbook, and also non-B Corp organizations can review this document. So I encourage you to have a look. We have certainly used that as a base for our climate emergency. Fantastic. A couple of templates there from architects and from B Corp organisations. I'm going to move on to the next one. The next question was around the property council. What are you doing there and who's going to start on that? I reckon the best way to get the property council on board will be through ASBEC, the Australian Sustainable Built Environment Council, of which they are a member. And I think that is an organisation that will help move them into a more positive space. Any different views to that? different views? Uh, so we are working with, um, not directly with the Property Council, but with um, some individuals that have been working to influence them in this space and in directly uh, to create templates for buildings in the City of Melbourne for greening Melbourne um, because it's very possible, the technology exists, um, it's a matter of um, doing the work. Um, so, so yes, they absolutely should be advocating and there are members of Property Council who are very aware of that. Um, so I think if you want to have an offline conversation about the detail of that, I'm more than happy to have a conversation about it, but, but I completely agree. There's a, a big role for PCA to play. And uh, I think it's okay to share that um, the PCA Property Committee is getting some talks from BZE about um, greening the supply chain, looking further beyond just the built environment and actually looking at those um, scope two, scope three emissions and the overall impact there. So certainly no lack of interest from some parts within there, but it is about activating all of those to actually get some all-encompassing change. Now, clients, how much are you willing to reduce yeah. your work or tailor who you work mm. for in this? And to my mind, this question has something about the standing of an architecturally designed mm. building, of a high-quality building, a high-quality client. How much are you going to play a role in that? Can I jump in on this one? Because I've been talking to um, a lot of architects and just saying this, the platform of Architects Declare is a very strong one and you should be using that to sell, help say to your, bring your clients along. First of all, try and convince them to do a better project. And, and there's so many reasons why, like it won't be a white elephant in the future, it will be able to attract good tenants, it will be valuable into the future, um, etc. And then also I think if the architects declare stand firm, we've got some of the best architects in the country signed up and if all of them say no to bad projects then they will not be able to get the great architects. And there's been a lot of discussion over in the UK about this as some of the architects who have declared the, the Sterling and Prize Award winners are designing airports, new airports in the UK, which in the UK which can rely heavily on tra train transport, it's probably pretty indefensible to do any more new airports. So a lot of discussion broadly about that. No new airports by architects from Caroline. We were just about to get interesting. Okay. <laughs> I'll go, Jane and, and David, I think you'll have a comment on that as well. Yeah, so we're seeing this. So I'd like to emphasise that um, while we have a lot of um, signatories to the declaration, which is fantastic, what we've also been doing behind the scenes is working with the very largest of Australia's engineering firms across all sectors. So 
um, including fossil fuel and primary resource sectors because, frankly, there's a lot of money there and if it can be redirected in a way that is positive, um, we have a huge opportunity to, trans to, to do, conduct some of the economic transformation that this country so desperately needs. Um, one of the examples of that um, relative to this is, um, for any of you that have been following Adani, um, you know, I suspect some of the room may have been, um, uh, engineering firms um, are following the finance sector um, in pulling out of contracts or discontinuing um, seeking work on that project in future. So um, the answer, the direct answer, the direct answer to your question is yes, client refusal is already taking place. Um, and one of the things that I was really heartened to hear is um, I think one of the big questions that is asked is if we refuse to work on a project that we know is bad for the future, what message does that send and will the government come and, and berate us for that? And the answer is yes. If you look up what's happened to some of the um, senior leaders in the firms that have rejected that work, they have been publicly called out um, and named and shamed by our politicians, which is a, just absolutely disgusting. It is bullying at its definition. Um, and, but having said that, um, in talking to them about the follow-on impact of that, they have seen no, no tier one impact to that decision. So it means that their other clients are actually looking at that and going, we actually support what you're doing. So I Yay. think money speaks. That's great news. And um, David, I, I think that this may be perhaps an, a membership question there. You've got a lot of uh, members, perhaps urban fringe developers, people who are, you know, there's a, a lot of um, urban development that perhaps happens in ways that does have very big implications for climate emissions and things like that. So how far do you go as, a, as an industry group in, in sort of cutting off your, your membership and, and where that sits? This keeps me awake at night. As the CEO trying to set strategy for the profession, this does keep me awake at night. Where I am at the moment is I applaud and support and will do anything to help the individual professions, individual professionals and their firms take us any stance they want on rejection. But I think in net terms it is not helpful for an unregulated profession to take that from the top down because all I'm going to do is alienate a large group, they will leave and I will have no ability to influence. At the moment we can influence them through professional development, we can influence them through our policy work and we have a, a significant advantage in because we work in the policy world we have to very good access to elected officials. So you mentioned that you've had um, climate policy then, just to fill out that question, because this is a question about what sacrifice you're ready to make for this. So you've had climate policy for 10 years, you said, and, and how, how do you think that's actually impacting some of, you know, I gave the example of the urban fringe, but I think there's some other examples as well where we're really allowing our cities to maybe get a bit away from where our climate goals actually are. And this is in context of this, this summit, of course, which is talking mm. about a 10-year transition. And fair to say, probably none of us are there yet in our professional world. Perhaps, perhaps Richard might correct me, but 
how, how, are you, how do you think that that's actually playing out, the advocacy and the policy work towards a rapid decarbonisation? How much impact are you getting? Yeah, this might sound like I'm weaseling out of that question, but I'm not. Okay. But planners actually have to cope with a whole range of megatrends. We have rapid urbanisation. We've got changing demography in the country's population. We've got a digital transformation that's hitting us. We've got uh, the climate change megatrend. Now, we have to be able to do and work with all of those. So what planners do is they are in the world of telling stories with the community about trade-offs. In declaring an emergency, what we're doing is we're saying this megatrend is now the top of the pile. We are going to have to now consider those trade-offs through primarily that lens. Thank you. So that, that's a watch this space. We're taking a strongest point now and we'll see some policy change and some follow-through happening. Thank you. And Richard. I'd just like to make a comment on that because for, for us, um, th seeing climate change through a health lens um, allows us to also see things around town planning through a health lens. And everyone's, I've heard a lot about health within this sector and it really intrigues me because what, what would a healthy, healthy society or uh, community look like in terms of more green space, buildings that were more um, climate resistant in terms of heat, um, more livable cities where you'd have less cars and people were walking more and you'd get more exercise happening, you'd have less air pollution from vehicles, each of which has a health cost, an externalised health cost that we end up bearing. You, don't, you guys don't get to see it, we get to see the externalised health cost. So seen through that lens, um, a lot of changes could happen that would be actually beneficial and we don't get invited much actually to town planning meetings. <laughs> I'm, we are very excited to hear that Doctors for the Environment perhaps doing some policy advisory work in the next round. And thank you, and they do. David, you've got the world on your shoulders now. We're going to go back to the audience for three more questions. <laughs> okay. Now, oh, come on, you've gone back over this side again. I'm going to start through the middle because I think we can do this twice more. I'm so sorry. You, did, you put your hand down when the mic went past in the check shirt. Three questions. Thank you. Um, David, just picking up your point about uh, planners operating at the front end, and I'd suggest that applies to all of the professions. It's what happens after that. Most decisions about our cities and regions, and that includes health, and includes travel, and includes energy planning, are made by people who are not members of this profession. Anyone can call themselves a building designer. Anyone can call themselves a, a planner. I can't necessarily call myself a doctor. <laughs> I can call myself an engineer, though. Um, so how do you go to that next step? And are the professions really willing to call out unsustainable behaviour, um, which has gone on for decade after decade after decade? Or are we still going to be a little holier than they are? <laughs> Thank you very much. OK, we'll go for the, the second question here. And then there's a... I'm Pierre Bruce and I'm a doctor from Melbourne and this is a question for Dr Richard Yin. Um, I'm delighted DEA has been involved in creating a movement and attempting to stop the politics, but they're stopping the money. And since eight major medical organisations have declared a climate emergency on medical grounds, is there reason to follow the steps of Dr Bronwyn King, a cancer specialist from Melbourne who created tobacco-free portfolios 
to stop superannuation funds and insurance companies investing in tobacco is a time for um, fossil-free, free portfolios to stop investing in um, superannuation funds and insurance companies investing in fossil fuels on medical grounds. Thank you. Excellent. Second question. Two excellent questions. Third one just behind. Yep. Um, this is a question for Richard. Hi, it's Tamara Dimitina from the New Joneses. And I, hi, Cara. I try to communicate um, complex conversations that we have in this room to mainstream audiences who don't really get it and aren't engaged. So I think doctors have a, such a massive opportunity to talk, or GPs, to the general public. I've seen mates of mine who aren't engaged in climate change or animal rights, human rights, that sort of thing, change their diet as a result of the Netflix Game Changers doco. I don't know how many people have just seen the impact of reframing um, eating animals from an animal rights to a human health issue and how massively that is, I've seen it change the dial. What can the doctors do as far as communicating that message of um, having the conversation with climate change as a human health issue just to the general public? Like what's something that could immediately open up that conversation? Thank you. So we'll go uh, David, Richard, Richard. So the gentleman in the check shirt hasn't actually advised who he is. He's actually one of the great champions of urban design for the last 30 years. <laughs> and the partner of Caroline is also one of the preeminent planners in the country. And there's a gentleman over in the back corner who's sitting there very quietly who has single-handedly created the first state, be it a territory, in Australia that is now 100% renewable energy powered. And he's sitting over there. So I feel a fraud. <laughs> but to your question, Bill, um, there, for the first time in my memory, the CEO of the Engineers Australia is hosting a meeting next week with the CEOs of the three design institutes and engineers, and we are going to answer that exact question and figure out how we are now going to put climate change as that first filter to begin to think through how we all respond as the four professions. And, uh, and Richard will, of course, be getting his invite, so over to you, Richard. Um, regarding divestment, the divestment movement from a health perspective is, is complicated because the nature of superannuations and funds is focused around fiduciary duty. Um, so somehow the aspect around social licence and health issues is a really complex one to push for them and certainly doctors from environment Australia have been actually advocating around divestment for some time and must admit making headway in, in that space is hard work. It's really been a difficult thing and perhaps there's more chance now, but certainly in early, early years, it, it's difficult. So yes, I would love to see a divestment movement based around fossil fuels focused on health. Um, and it's just a question of the advocacy that actually has to be involved by all sectors. But as I said, the, the little crux comes around this fiduciary duty about, about funds and how they bypass a whole number of issues by saying they have a fiduciary duty, whatever that means which is becoming less and less, um, uh, doesn't, doesn't hold water so much because these days climate change is a fiduciary risk and so they will have to be taking into account. Regarding the health messaging issue, <laughs> um, 
you could focus on a negative messaging or a positive one, but I think the positive one is that anything, the things that we do in terms of reducing emissions are generally health promoting. That is, getting out of fossil fuels and, um, and reducing pollution from, from coal-fired power stations or from vehicles um, reduces deaths. Um, there's some 3,000 deaths from air pollution annually in Australia. The, the bill for that is somewhere in the vicinity of three to 10 billion, depending on who you're looking roughly around those figures. Um, so there's, there's an externalized cost from air pollution alone. Uh, if you, as I said, if you switch over to um, more active forms of transport as opposed to uh, cars, then you actually have more exercise happening and you actually have um, a healthier uh, people. If you have more green space, green space within communities is healthy, so, and they reduce urban heat sinks, and so you're preparing the city for a hotter climate. So there are many, many positive messages um, by being um, pro-climate action um, that relates completely to health. Thank you. I've been, I have been given a five-minute okay. warning about okay. one and a half minutes ago. Okay. So just on the divest, the Canadian architects divest have launched a great big sort of following. I think they saw us the decarbonise and they went, okay, we're, we're divesting. And they've asked all of their people to think about their banks, their super... Well, I don't think they have superannuation, but something similar. And also who in, all their insurance agents, and they've asked them all to move them away from companies that are investing in fossil fuels. And I think that's possibly something we can consider here because I think there's nothing more powerful than money walking. So um, full apologies. I have not been able to get all the way across the room. So I'm going to give the last two minutes. Tell us, how can we continue this conversation with you? Is anyone able to walk slowly to lunch? I know, Richard, you said you have to duck out really quickly. I know there's some really interesting questions. I can tell by the looks of consternation on the hands raised. Like, What can we do to stay in touch? Is there something today or is, there, is it better to stay in touch on a website or such? Let us know. Across from here, Jane, how can we stay in touch? Uh, so we have about uh, probably half a dozen representatives here today. Um, David in the front row here and I saw Jackie walk in at the back of the room and myself. Um, David, identify yourself. Oh, Chris. Chris is here as well. Yeah, Chris, um, hand up. Please come and talk to one of us. Um, we, we would welcome your questions and your engagement. Um, in addition to that, in the very near future, we will be t following Architects Declare and having a series of events. We would welcome people to attend those um, and please uh, follow us on social media, on LinkedIn or get in touch by email if you'd like more information. Okay. Okay, quickly, Richard, how can we stay in touch, continue the conversation? Happy to hang around for about five or ten minutes. Otherwise, join Doctors for Environment if you're a doctor and actually be in contact that way. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, um, Jacinta here is, and Nadine, uh, stand up, are organising talks um, in the coming weeks. Um, and we've got stuff in Sydney and Brisbane and Perth and other places. See it on Instagram, Architects Declare, and also we've got a Facebook page, and that's kind of the best thing until we set up a web page, which we are aiming to do. Thank you, Carolyn. David, what are you going to do? How can we stay in touch? I'm probably more connected with the built environment sector professionals. Um, and we have, office, we have offices all around the country. Um, and uh, I'll be here for the whole afternoon. And Thank I can talk forever. <laughs>
<laughs> it did. That didn't not come on his bio. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm happy to stay around, but otherwise we are also Intrepid is headquartered here in Melbourne, so I'm based here. Also happy to have separate conversations, but for Intrepid, please follow also our social media channels where we are talking in our journals, etc., how we're doing with our climate emergency plan. And also, we are publishing annually our performance. So for us, it's also really around communicating and being transparent. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't become just like, hey, we declared, but we're not really following through. So that's, on the, our commitment. that's the intrepid story. It's tra uh, tourism. Yes. Tourism declare. And you um, have experience being a certified B Corp. They're yes. all useful things exactly. to ask about. Once more, big round of applause. Thank you so much to our awesome panel here today. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.